electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action shares of Lyft, Zillow, and more. The earnings calls underway. We are dialed in getting you the details, plus a short squeeze surge. The stock that more than tripled at its peak today, why the move caught one of our traders' eye, and how they're playing shares now. And Las Vegas Sands going all in on Macau, but will the big bet pay off? We'll be joined exclusively by the new CEO, Robert Goldstein, for some answers. We start off with the countdown to what might be the most important Fed meeting of the year. Markets anxiously awaiting any news about a taper. All three major indices closing at another set of records. The Dow Industrials closing above 36,000 for the first time ever. Take a look at yields, though. The two-year Treasury pulling back in a big way today. So what are the markets saying about what we should expect tomorrow? Are they ready for the Fed to start tightening? Have we factored this all in, Tim? Well, we've had big reactions. We had reactions to other central banks around the world doing what they could. And we've seen uh, maybe yield curves change in other parts of the world. But G8 countries, for sure, Australia, uh, Canada. And, and so on some sense, we've gotten a sense. I think the, the, the taper and the statement are things we largely could probably write here on this show tonight. How the markets are going to react in terms of the timing, hard to know. Uh, we're at all-time highs in markets. The, you know, any less accommodation by the Fed, or as I like to say, more Fed, uh, in other words, more of a Fed influence as it relates to, uh, to tightening equals a lot more volatility. I just don't know when it's going to happen. And so while we believe that we've got a taper priced in, um, I'm not sure that we do. But more importantly, there are still adjustments to be made in yield curves. And, and we've seen some examples, again, of where markets are getting ahead of even possibly our central bank and where the dot plots are and where this Federal Reserve team uh, and various governors, voting members of the FOMC have said where they expect uh, to be moving rates out the next two to three years. That may be coming in. Uh, again, it's all coming at a time when inflation is giving central banks zero room to maneuver. And, and you know, be careful what you wish for. They've all wanted inflation above the, the 2 to 3 percent rate. Boy, they've got it. They've got it in, in spades and they've got it in every corner of the economy. And then you throw in COVID, you have supply chain and, and here we go. So I don't think this is a non-event. And, and I think considering it's always where you come from. And we come into this moment at all-time highs and, and maybe a fresh round of, of kind of peak complacency. Look at the VIX. It, it does feel like it is too much of a foregone conclusion, too consensus, if you will, that the formal announcement of the taper won't be a huge volatility event in the market, Stan. Um, and you know how we feel on the show about consensus views. We tend to go against them, or at least you do. <laughs> oh, look at that, Mel. You set me up there. I mean, listen, you know, I think Tim ended with the VIX, and it's right. I mean, if you look at finally, even the um, the small caps have started to participate. So we have the NASDAQ, the S&P at making new all-time highs, it seems like, daily over the last couple of weeks. And it looks like the uh, Russell 2000 wants to break out. The VIX is at 16. Um, the dollars come in a little bit. Rates don't go anywhere. Um, it seems like a really complacent environment. And I would say this is that, you know, crypto and I'll leave that to BK 
away a little bit, but that doesn't act like we're going to get too hawkish on monetary policy right now. Very near um, the highs here. I'll just go back. You and I shared a car, uh, chart, Mel, just a little bit ago on text. I was looking at 2013, December 18th, 2013, when the Fed then announced the taper. They were only buying, I think, $80 billion in bonds combined. We're buying 120 now um, a month here. And the Fed or the, the stock market was at an all-time high when they made that announcement and closed higher on the year. And the chart looks the same as the S&P this year, bottom left, upper right. We're up, what, 23%? I think at the time in 2013, the S&P was up 22, 23%, closed up 27% on the year. Wow. Uh, Brian Kelly. Yeah, listen, if you look at volatility, let's stick with that because both Dan and Tim mentioned volatility in other markets outside of equities. So we know we've had volatility in bond markets. We've had volatility in currencies. The question is, does it come to the equity market? And I think that the equity market investors mentality right now is, well, you know what? The Fed has done a really good job of telling us that the taper is coming. They've still got our back. Yeah, we've got supply chain issues, but... The economic recovery is delayed, not derailed. So if we get to tomorrow and the Fed is successful at convincing everybody that, it, that this supply chain issue is going to be gone and that uh, inflation is, maybe it's not as transitory as they thought, but they got a handle on it. They can convince equity markets of that, then fine, knock yourself higher. But eventually, when markets break like this, it does come home to roost. It might just take us a little bit in the equity market because it tends to be the last one to move. Yeah, I mean, you you are putting a lot on Jerome Powell then if Jerome Powell is the one to convince the market that the supply chain constraints and inflation is actually their temporary or transitory events and will pass soon, Karen, when we are in the midst of earnings season and we're getting all sorts of real life data points and real life reason what is going on at the ports, et cetera, right now. What's your view on, on whether or not these things are transitory or could actually impact the pace of the recovery? Um, or maybe the pace of the Fed's taper slash rate hikes. Yeah, I think that's going to be the more important issue is the commentary around inflation, <laughs> because I do think that, you know, the taper has already been telegraphed, uh, you know, excessively. Um, so I think there is inflation. I think, you know, yesterday we talked about the new UAW deal signed at Deer, right? I think that we're going to see more and more labor inflation, whether or not it's a big union deal or whether it's just wages going up without a union. So that, that's sticky inflation. I don't see that as transitory. Some of the bottlenecks related to the supply chain, okay, that may be transitory. But, I mean, oil has moved beyond, you know, that, that's, I don't know where it'll end up for the year, but it's certainly higher. And I think that's not so transitory. So I feel like inflation is really here. So to me, it's about what, how do they think about inflation? How do they, what makes them confident of its transitory nature when, to me, it seems to not be transitory for so many reasons? So that's the, whether or not they taper a little or a lot, right. I think that doesn't actually matter, but they will. But it's more about what are they going to do about rates and when. I don't think yeah. he'll, he'll give us that answer. But and what, what, the heck, what the heck is transitory, too, by the way? I'd love to know that. Um, we got to stop this conversation momentarily. We've got breaking news out of the CDC on Pfizer's COVID vaccine. Meg Terrell's got the latest. Meg. 
Hey, Melissa, uh, CDC's outside advisors on vaccines voting just now on whether to recommend the kids uh, vaccine for ages 5 to 11 from Pfizer. Effusively unanimous uh, vote there, 14 to 0 in favor of recommending this vaccine. Of course, it was authorized by the FDA on Friday. The last step now is it goes up to the CDC director to adopt that recommendation, which is widely expected. After that happens, 28 million kids between the ages of 5 and 11 become eligible to get the vaccine. And we're already hearing about locations gearing up to start giving the first vaccinations out to kids tomorrow morning, Mel. So these outside vaccine advisors really feeling strongly about the need for kids to get vaccinated to protect themselves, but also to help things get back to normal for them and society at large. Mel, back to you. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell and Meg makes a very good point of getting society at large back to normal. And Dan, you you mentioned earlier that the work from home socks are getting just crushed today. Maybe that's part of this whole thing. Yeah, I think the latest, Mel, we were, we were talking about Chegg, you know, the, the school from home uh, company down nearly 50% just today, right? And so if you think about school from home, Zoom is down 50% from its highs last year. Um, Peloton is down 50%. So the workout from home, work from home, school from home, and then even Zillow, we're going to talk about later, the, the flip home from home, um, also <laughs> down about 50%. So a lot of those narratives in the market have just come out and they continue to get worse. They don't get better. And I think that's really important because we talk about valuations a lot. And we also say that in a rip-roaring bull market, most people don't really care when you have growth and you have an optimistic outlook. But when things start to turn and the margins start to decline and you start seeing deceleration, they do start to care. And that's one of the reasons why we bring that off often. All right. Um, Let's get back to the Fed here for more on what we can expect from the Fed tomorrow. Let's bring in Steve Leisman. Steve, it's always good to see you. And you, Melissa. Um, <laughs> it seems I think like I want to Steve... start off. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to start off by throwing some cold water on uh, this hot and breathless Federal Reserve story, just because I was thinking, and I want to throw this out, idea out, because I was just putting together some of the data here, and, and I'm looking at where the market's priced right now. And, and guys, if we just call these full screens real quick, here are the Fed probabilities as of, I don't know, a few minutes ago. Uh, and, and the news here is obviously that the market has moved forward by about six months, the first rate hike. And you see there, pretty good probability of a June hike as you move towards uh, uh, July. It's higher and for sure by December. But it's the other one that's sort of more interesting, which is the probability of a second hike, which is the market started up pricing a second hike. And, and obviously that's a big deal. And, and I'm gonna t- I'll talk in a second about what we might get from Powell on this. But if you think about it, if you take a step back, The Fed announces the taper tomorrow. What does that mean? It means over the next several months, it will be adding $660 billion to its its balance sheet, okay, and reducing it by $15 billion a month. Big deal. Then it's going to maybe add, perhaps in in this worst-case scenario that the markets have suddenly repriced, 50 basis points, which is going to bring you where? Back to the first cuts that brought us down below 1% of March of 2020, so you got another seven months of zero, and then maybe uh, another 12 months of 50. I guess the bottom line is, if you told me that we're going to be adding to the balance sheet $660 billion with the taper going on, and and the worst case scenario, which may not be the worst case, is that you're going to add 50 basis points to the Fed funds rate, I don't know, that helps me understand why markets have taken this repricing on the short end of the curve, kind of with a a margarita and and a lounge chair on a beach somewhere in Acapulco. See, see, the problem is that you you speak reason, 
and the markets are the markets. <laughs> and I think that they're two different beings here because the fact that we've already, we, you know, just a month ago, that June hike was only a 20 percent chance. So we all know that Fed funds, futures or whatever we're using as this gauge of pricing in can sure. change on a dime. And, and it seems like tomorrow, uh, Chair Powell, there, there is a, a tape bomb that is waiting to happen when he talks about inflation potentially and whether or not this is transitory. I mean, it's all in how he characterizes and it's going to be very nuanced. And so to, just to say that this is priced in or that's priced in so the markets are OK, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem no, no, no. to me you, like you also speak. you also speak. You also speak reason, Melissa, if I might respond. And that is for sure that you never know when the market's going to internalize something and go a little crazy when it reads it. Uh, that, that, is, that is true. And, and I, I just think that the danger here is not what we see. The danger is what we don't know. I think Karen was maybe alluding to this. I'm not dealing with Seymour, who just told me he's going to go see Dave Matthews instead of my band on November 12th, but I'll, I'll deal with wow. that later. But, but I think the issue here... I know, right? I mean, here's the thing. But here's the thing. Uh, the danger, I think, is what Karen was getting at, is that we don't see what the Fed has to do over time to bring inflation back down to 2%. That it's something worse than what we're looking at. But still, when you look into 2023, the market, at least the futures pricing, is still relatively calm there. So I'm just saying that this repricing, I've watched how stocks have reacted um, and we have this re-reopening, and I think it was said by somebody earlier, if these rate hikes are come along with better growth, with a reopening of the economy, um, then I think they kind of negate each other. And so this hot, breathless, historic story, which is going to hopefully happen tomorrow, I think it will, is not that big of a deal for the market if we're looking at the worst case. All right. So, Steve, I got to jump in here, first of all. Um, and let's let's use some Dave Matthews metaphors. And, and obviously, I will be seeing the Stella Blues Band <laughs> uh -oh. on November 12th at the cutting room. But but again, we are ants marching if you look at the assets and you talk about the Fed. I mean, let, let's be clear. They've tripled. Uh, a number of markets have tripled or at all time highs. We've seen you know wheat prices today at all time highs. We've seen copper prices at all time highs. Housing prices are up 20 percent this year. A lot of stocks in the S&P have tripled off covid lows. You've got a dynamic here where the Fed has pulled and goosed demand forward, arguably, um, to stimulate the economy. But you've left yourself where some of these yield curves may be, in fact, pricing in a world where the Fed has to come in. And unfortunately, they, they're going to overstep their bounds because they have no choice but to. And if you look at December 2015, December 2017, de December 2018, these were all moments where the minute the Fed had to hike and do this hike that you think is, is somewhat benign. And I'm not angry with you. I'm I'm, I'm a little frustrated that the environment is, is one where we can assess, um, and I agree with you, normalizing interest rates here is ultimately a good thing for society because it means that Pfizer and Merck and, 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 and Moderna and all these companies that have done remarkable work have brought us back from the brink. But but markets and asset prices come into this period at very elevated levels. And I'm not sure that's even fair to ask you to comment on because you're, you're really speaking about the Fed. But no, isn't that the danger? You're, you're right. You're right. I can't I'm not going to comment on that. And you're precisely right to identify that risk, in my opinion, which is that I don't know how much zero rates and how much continuous QE this market needs to remain at this level. If you ask me, is the economy capable of handling this? I say easily. Uh, if you ask me if earnings are able to, 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 to stomach 
50 basis points, 75 basis points, even 100 basis points of tightening over time. I think that should be relatively easy. I don't get involved. That's why you guys are the are the experts here at figuring out, does this mean that all of this psychology that's inflated these bubbles are going to go away? You play that trade. I'm just telling you that what looks to me like the worst scenario is going back to, at least at the moment, is going back to a place we were even when the Fed was cutting rates in March of 2020. And that doesn't scare me relative to the economy and the ability of companies to make money in that environment. Steve, it's always good to see you. Thank you. Pleasure, Melissa. Steve Leisman, it's always the context into which we go into an event, Dan Nathan, and the context here are record highs across the board, even the participation of the Russells, you pointed out, et cetera, et cetera. There's a reason probably that there's the expression, do not fight the Fed. And here we are, and the Fed is peeling back. So... I don't know. What yeah, do you Mel, I would say that this is not too different than we entered in earnings season just a few weeks ago, you know, where expectations were relative to where the market was, that sort of thing. And we've outperformed. So I think at this point, I mean, the Fed would have to be a bit more hawkish than what the expectations are. And you'd have to see those expectations for hikes move up materially for stocks to get too bothered. But all that said, we started out the show talking about this is that the level of complacency is large. I just don't think we're going to have a meaningful pullback at this point because they start to normalize, which everyone and their mother thinks that they should be doing at this moment. All right. We've got an earnings alert meantime here on Lyft. Shares of the company are jumping on results. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa for the breakdown. Debo. Well, Melissa, they really jumped higher after Lyft CFO Brian Roberts said on the earnings call that given their success onboarding new drivers, they will be able to taper supply investments, that is incentives in the current quarter. Now, plus the company also saying that it now expects to be profitable on an adjusted EBITDA basis for the full year. Driver shortage, of course, has been the big concern for investors since the economy began to reopen and demand really came back. They didn't have enough drivers, but the company says that that supply, driver supply, materially improved in the third quarter, up 45% versus last year. They attributed it to sunsetting government unemployment benefits and at the same time, productivity improvements on the platform. So more rides per driver. And that led revenue per active rider to actually increase despite last despite last quarter's warnings, also hitting a record high. Now, this, of course, raises the stakes for Uber, which reports on Thursday Dara Khazar Shai and his team has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on driver incentives this year. So investors are going to be wondering, will they have also been successful in bringing them back onto the platform? And can they also scale back investments now? Melissa, Lyft president and co-founder John Zimmer. Don't miss him on Squawk Box tomorrow either. Back to you. All right. Debo, thanks. Deidre Bosa, Brian Kelly, what do you make of this huge move in Lyft? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, the take the takeaway for me are two things. Obviously, you know, people are going back to work, but also I think what's really interesting there is the number of drivers have come back up. So when we put that into the entire conversation that we've had at the top of the show here, you now have government benefits coming off. People's savings are at the levels that we haven't seen since before the pandemic. So they have to go back to work, which is good. They should be earning money. But the core assumption of what the Fed is doing is that the economy can handle it because the economy is getting better. My question is, what if this is as good as it gets? What if people go back to work at Lyft and they don't earn what they used to earn? They spend their last dollar on Christmas because they haven't been able to celebrate in two years or a year and a half or so. Uh, Then what happens in January? It seems to me there's clear sailing from now to the end of the year. 
But it also seems to me that the Fed could be raising rates at the absolute worst time. Coming up, it is official. Zillow is shutting down its once key home buying business. What that says about the state of the housing market and what it means for the stock. But first, a rental car company revved up in a big way today. What was behind this move and why it caught the attention of one of our traders? Much more fast right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an after-hours alert on Bed Bath & Beyond share surging after the company strikes an e-commerce partnership with Kroger. A couple of other names popular with the Reddit crowd also getting a boost. Check out moves in AMC, up 11% right now. And GameStop also higher by about 7% right now, both really jumping in just the last half hour or so. And check out what was on an absolute tear today. Shares more than tripling at its highs of the day before closing up. Just 100%. I say tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the car rental company, Avis, posting <laughs> solid earnings beat yesterday. But, Karen, you say something else might have happened here. This is a fascinating story. Yeah, so I saw it, you know, up 100%. And I saw, okay, earnings, it must have been good. And then it was up, like, 150%. And I thought, wow, well, okay, it must be a squeeze. So I had seen numbers uh, anywhere between 21 and 37% short, which normally says to me this is a squeeze. So I called my broker and said, listen, I don't have the cojones to do it, but if I wanted to short, could I get a borrow? How much would it be? They said, yep, no problem. It's 100000 if you want it, and it's, uh, you know, it's our lowest price. That was kind of surprising to me. Then I noticed there's one large shareholder, SRS, and they own, I think, 32-some-odd percent, which makes them, I believe, a Form 4 filer. I'd be very curious to see whether they owned it, I mean, whether they sold into this or not. But here's the thing. So it used to be like a week ago, maybe, when you, if you wanted your stock to move, you're, you know, an EV manufacturer, that was a great way to have your stock move. But now you don't even need to manufacture EVs. All you need to do to move your stock is just say that you're going to rent them. And then you don't even actually need to rent them. You just need to say you're going to rent them, whether or not the, you know, Tesla, whoever agrees with you or not, that's going to move your stock a lot. That's insane to me because it used to be not that long ago when you would sell to the rental cars that that was like those are fleet sales. Those aren't as good. But everything is different now, apparently. So this one, 
I, I think it's probably a short, but I do not have the fortitude to short it. But good for SRS. That's a huge home run. Fortitude. It is a family show after all. Um, the CFO, interesting, you know, into the point that Karen was making in terms of maybe not even renting them at all, they didn't actually announce anything. The CFO said that they don't they like to announce a strategy until they execute on it. So it's, it moved higher. The move was all on just the belief that they are going or are doing something right now, Tim. I don't know how, what you make of this crazy ride that we saw. Well, I, I think, you know, b between also the news around Hertz and whether it's official or not with Tesla, um, just the retransformation of these rental car companies and, and really obviously the demand parts around it. But, but also, again, you know, the, the, the story of, of where you have short interest and where you have uh, people that are offsides on a trade is, is another big part. That, that's the story on Best Buy, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, excuse me. And, and I think, you know, it, there, there are a number of these broken companies that are finding ways to reinvent themselves. And that's part of, again, all, all we've talked about in, in the Reddit story and whether, whether some of these companies are or not, um, the capital markets are allowing them to get there and then figure it out later. And that's, that's been one of the great stories of 2021. So BK, Karen said the, uh, the borrow is cheap. It's up 100%. You tempted to short it? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not tempted to short it, but I think that's, I think right there, Karen nailed it. That is the story. There is nobody shorting this stock. That's why it's up. Every risk manager on Wall Street has said, stay away from the Wall Street bets and Reddit stocks, the meme stocks. You're not allowed to short those. So there's no sellers out there. So all you get are these wild moves up. I mean, I, if this continues, so a couple different things. One, I remember trading back in 99. And if you announced that you had a website, your stock went up 20%. Same thing's happening with EVs. These things don't happen at bottoms. They happen near tops. That's the process we're seeing. You don't have any short sellers out there. BK is not going to be the first one. As much as I like to be a contrarian, I would also like to be able to rent from Avis and have some money to do it. And I'm not going to get that by shorting Avis. Coming up, we're all over the after hours action in Zillow, the company announcing that it is shutting down its home flipping business. We've got the details on that next. The stock is down more than 8% right now. Plus, Las Vegas Sands CEO Rob Goldstein joins us in just a few to break down the company's latest efforts in Macau. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We will be back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Zillow. Shares still lower after plunging more than 10% during the trading session. Right now, they're down 8.7%. Seema Modi's got the latest from the conference call. Seema. And Melissa, home flipping a business Zillow once predicted would generate $20 billion a year is being shut down. Zillow CEO Rich Barton blaming the algorithm it uses to buy and sell homes and the inability to predict the future price of real estate. We've had a housing market that froze up initially, 
And now we've seen a growth rate, an acceleration rate in the housing market that we've never before witnessed in history. And as you might imagine, that has made predicting the price of a home six months into the future really difficult. And we're doing it at a scale that is one-tenth what it needs to be in order to get to the scale we think we need to achieve to offer good prices. So we stepped back, we assessed, we looked at the volatility in our earnings that we're reporting today, and we said, hey, we don't need to be doing this. Just two weeks ago, the company said it would stop all new purchases of homes, pointing to supply and labor shortages. And then analysts at KeyBank raising questions about the company's business model, estimating that Zillow had to list about two-thirds of its homes at prices below what it had paid. As the company winds down its eye-buying and inventory, it will let go, about, let go of 25% of its workforce. And with today's losses, we're looking at Zillow shares trade down by as much as 62% from its 52 two-week high. An interesting move in Zillow's competitor, Open Door, which did trade lower in the regular trading session. Uh, but right now you're seeing shares move higher here in after hours by as much as 6%. Melissa, back to you. Seema, thanks so much. Seema Modi. Um, you know, when I heard the CEO on the closing bell earlier today, and he was, t- I mean, scale is one thing, but the inability to predict if Zillow of all parties cannot predict the future prices of homes in six months using all the information that it has. Brian Kelly, that doesn't give me much confidence in my own ability to decide to buy a home or to invest. Well, I think it's a little bit. First of all, I'm shocked, shocked that predicting the prices in the future is hard. I mean, who would have thought <laughs> that? Jeez. I mean, oh, boy, the future is hard. So I think there's, there's so much wrong with this statement. I mean, number one, it, they should have consulted somebody who's been in markets knowing that uh, predicting prices are hard. Uh, number two, to try to scale it at the level they were trying to do is outrageous. The only thing good I can say about it is, you know, to borrow, borrow another market, market, market uh, term, is first loss, best loss. Just get out of it. So I don't want to be in Zillow. If anything, if you're looking to buy a home, Melissa, I'd look at the homes that Zillow are selling. That seems to be like a distressed asset to me. Seems like they got a lot of inventory to get off their hands in a fairly quick uh, manner, Mm -hmm. Karen. Um, You know, we were talking about this when they first said that they're going to halt the homes, and that raised eyebrows then. Um, First loss, best loss, that seems like an interesting way to look at this news, though. Yeah, I think, I mean... I I never understood where they got into this business. They have an extraordinary asset light business, and then they got into this very asset heavy business, and it seemed to work for a while. But good for them. I mean, I don't know if this is a market top or for houses or not, but good for them for just saying, you know what, it's not working. Shut it down. Let's not rationalize. But I think to see the rest of this business on its own will be very attractive to investors. Now, there'll probably be some puke out and analysts will downgrade. But I think there's clearly a great business here, an asset-like business. The returns are really phenomenal. And they kind of have this free pass now. They can take whatever write-downs they want and just say it's part of Zillow offer, whether that's for overhead, whether it's for the employees that they lay off, or whether it's for the inventory. If they want to just puke it out, they can, or they can sell it slowly. It doesn't really matter. But once you start to just look at this as the rest of the business, I think it's actually something pretty attractive. How do you interpret the news, Dan? 
Uh, you know, it might be a canary in the coal mine for the housing market. We know that some of the disruptions over the last 18 months have been very, very unusual. And the fact that they make this announcement, I, I would if they made the announcement that they were selling it to private equity down a third from the average cost of most of whatever the heck it is, you know, that they're going to be um, discounting these things, that would be better. I just think a slow trickle um, on the overheated market could be the thing, you know, the kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the last, I don't know, hay that broke the camel's back or whatever the heck the, the metaphor is. So to me, I don't know, it's not particularly bullish. Hey, straw. We get the point, though, Dan. <laughs> Coming straw. up, you don't want to miss an exclusive interview at Las Vegas Sands CEO Rob Goldstein. We're digging into the latest on the gaming industry. Plus, just trade market, Nike playing some defense in the digital world and filing some virtual goods patents. We've got the details in just a few. Don't go anywhere. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Las Vegas Sands up more than 6% this month. The company has been making major moves to its focus uh, to focus on its growth in Macau. Contessa Brew is sitting down for an exclusive interview with CEO Robert Goldstein. Contessa. Melissa, thank you very much. And this is the first time, by the way, I've interviewed Rob <laughs> face-to-face because you took over in the pandemic. We mm. were always separated by Zoom. Mm. So it's so great to be sitting with you it today. It feels good, doesn't it? It does Back feel in good. business. You know what else feels good? Being in Las Vegas and seeing this incredible demand. Boom. We just heard from Caesars. They had another record-breaking quarter. Those numbers quarter. are astounding. Caesars, Tom Rigg, hats off to those guys. Incredible are, numbers. So are you having seller's remorse about selling your no, Las Vegas no, property? No, we, we'll always be in Las Vegas emotionally. And do I feel bad about leaving the Venetian Palazzo? Yeah, because I was involved in day one with the guys who developed it. But uh, no, we've got other things we're doing with the company, and it puts us in a very strong position to invest more in Macau, more in Singapore. Uh, we'll always have a strong place in our heart for a lot, and the numbers don't surprise me. So really, really doubling down here on mm. Asia, and yet COVID still is mm. such a challenge yes. for a rebound in Macau. We just got those Macau great gaming revenue numbers in from October, down a quarter from the previous mm. quarter mm. because of infections. How do you get over that? Where did, when do you get over that hurdle? Uh, when, I don't know, but I look at Las Vegas as the rebound story. I mean, Las Vegas is the blueprint. Uh, less than a year ago, I was with people that told me Las Vegas won't recover uh, for four or five or six, maybe the end of the decade. And I listened to these people. I thought, I don't believe that. Well, here we are in November of 21. Las Vegas is 20, 30 percent above of pre-COVID numbers. We're doing record numbers. The Venetian, everyone's doing record numbers. Uh, Tom's numbers are extraordinary. Uh, Vegas is the blueprint for Asia. Once the vaccinations are, are uh, resolved, once the governments open the doors up, we're opening up in Singapore, Macau will follow. It, it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, the doors open, people want these products, and Asia will follow Las Vegas' lead. That's when, you, simple. when you announced earnings, you got a tough question from one of the analysts about mm. these licenses, and there it's called concessions mm-hmm. that are coming up for renewal. Right. Um, and he said, well, you know, how sure are you that you're actually going to get a concession renewal in mm. Macau? Mm. You were pretty bold in your answer. Um, here's my take. We've been in Macau for 20 years. Uh, we've been operating since 2004. We've invested $15 billion and built 30 million square feet of real estate, uh, retail, restaurants, casino, hotel. We have 27,000 employees. We've been the leader in non-gaming. 95% of our investment is in non-gaming product. To me, that bodes very well for our future in Macau. We've done everything the government wanted us to do. We've been working with the government for two decades, and we have a good relationship. But more importantly, our track record, I think they, they know what we've done. And we'll stand back and watch the process. We believe very, very adamantly 
that we will be relicensed and life will go on in Macau. We made uh, $3.45 billion pre-pandemic, and I think we'll go back to that. Uh, let's talk about Singapore, the single let's. most important, financially speaking, property in the portfolio. Mm. Uh, and I know that there have been some lanes that bring in a yep. little bit more traffic. Where are you going to see a rebound in Singapore? I think Singapore is first half of 22. I think Singapore is laying the groundwork. The government there has been extraordinary in working through the COVID. We're still struggling right now in Q4. But I think in Q1 and 2, the rebound begins. The lanes are opening. I think they're opening Australia. They're opening, I, I believe, Korea. It's all going to happen. As vaccinations climb to 70-plus percent, higher percentage of vaccination in Asia than the U.S. right now. So that's just the door opener. The lanes follow, and the business will come back. People want these products. And the same people who said, oh, Vegas won't come back. Now they're saying that about Asia, and they'll be wrong again. And you're sitting on this mountain of capital now. Where do you deploy it? Well, we've got big plans. We want to deploy it in Asia, uh, mostly both in Singapore and Macau. And as you know, we're looking at things in the U.S. as well. But our first, uh, our first stop would be because the, the investment opportunities in Macau and Singapore are still extraordinary. We've done very, very well. These, are, these assets are irreplaceable. You're hoping to get on the ballot with an initiative in Florida. We just saw sports, bowling, uh, sports betting roll out there. Mm -hmm. Texas has been a big lobbying effort on your part. New York is a big lobbying effort. Mm. Of those three, um, which is the most important? And do you, do you have confidence about any of them? Uh, I think all of them are going to happen. Whether we are there or not, I don't know. I think New York is inevitable. It has to happen here. I think Texas at some point, we hope so. We believe in it. It's an amazing market. I think we have a chance in Florida. I do. I think Florida is, is ripe for an opportunity. Um, we'll be in all three of those hunts. Whether we win or not depends on um, what happens. But we'll, we have the capital. We have the appetite. Um, we have lots of money to deploy. And we're going to be investing globally to maximize return for shareholders. Rob Goldstein, thank you. Thank you. Melissa? All right, Contessa, thank you. And thanks to our uh, guest, Las Vegas Sands CEO, Rob Goldstein. Tim Seymour, where do you stand on Sands or any of the other casino operators? I'm long. I'm long, and I've been long for a month. And I, I think there's a case here, if you listen to Rob Goldstein, I mean, the confidence doesn't come from, hey, I know what's going to happen in China. It's that we've been compliant. But not only that, we're, we're invested throughout, uh, throughout Southeast Asia. Singapore, Marina, Marina Bay Sands is a huge, huge property. Um, selling Vegas assets puts them, I think, in a, in a great position. And, and in fact, a question I might have asked is, are you thinking about buying back some stock? And he may or may not have to or, or, or will be able to answer that question uh, in, in, in a lot of different circles. But the company seems very confident on what they can do. They're moving aggressively into digital assets. They're well positioned in Asia. Um, and if you look at the Macau numbers from last month, they were up 32 percent sequentially. We know those markets are going to open up. It is about the license concessions, but um, this stock is way too cheap. You cut the multiple in half, you're 10% above COVID lows. Come on. Uh, this, this is a great opportunity. All right. Coming up, the best offense, good defense, especially in the virtual world. We'll tell you how Nike is blocking out the competition in the digital realm next. And we're taking a look at Qualcomm ahead of earnings tomorrow, what the options pits are betting to see in the report. We've got the details coming up. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. This is a fascinating story. A Nike is getting in on the NFT craze, filing several trademarks for virtual goods. The company is hoping to protect its mark in digital goods like NFTs or in video games like Fortnite. Um, BK, you saw this. I mean, we all know that you can buy, you know, bell-bottom pants and vests for your avatar in a metaverse. 
and that those items might actually cost right. thousands of dollars. So why not Nike and why not trademark that? This, this to me has been the promise of NFTs from the beginning. You're going to have your normal closet and a digital closet. And eventually Nike's going to sell you a pair of digital Air Jordans that you're going to wear around the metaverse or in any game that you want. Or maybe even to a virtual sporting event. You're going to be able to wear it. So you're starting to see this entire thing converge. Different technologies converge. And NFTs and Nike now saying they're going to do it are at the heart of it. I just think it's fascinating to see this develop. This is the next growth stage for crypto, for NFTs, and frankly, for Nike. Because think about it. This is a whole new revenue stream for them. Your digital closet. I was just sort of musing today that, you know, someday, maybe not in, in the too far distant future, Dan, we will see a breakout in Nike's earnings report. Sales from metaverse stores or something like that as opposed to bricks and mortars and DTC. I mean, this will be an interesting sort of evolution that we we are experiencing right now. Yeah, I think, Mel, you hit the nail on the head. When you have an iconic brand, you have a premium brand like this where people are willing to pay on secondary markets, you know, thousands of dollars for a pair of shoes that are just scarce in real life, they're likely to do the same thing in the metaverse. I mean, one of the things that I keep learning from a lot of my friends that are much younger than me, when they think about investing or they think about what they purchased, they're really thinking about culture, they're thinking about identity. And for them, they have stronger connections to the digital world and their for it makes perfect sense. You and I, we may never understand it, but we might see this offline online shift of purchasing of things that make people feel good and project a certain something to them. I prefer the kicks on my shoes. I'll still go to the GOAT app and do that. I'm not sure I'll be buying an NFT from Nike anytime soon, though. The extrapolation is that what, what do you do when your avatar is tired of wearing stuff, Karen? And I was <laughs> just thinking of like a digital real real. I mean, a marketplace for this stuff <laughs> where you want to get rid of the bell bottoms that you no longer want to wear in your avatar. <laughs> Well, I hadn't even thought through the first part yet, let alone to do, like, what are you going to do with the old ones? I don't know. You swap them, you trade them. I think Real Real needs to, you know, finish in the material world first um, and be profitable before they enter the metaverse. But you never know if they, you know, if they came out with a metaverse something or other, maybe that would be viewed favorably. But I'm, I'm still in the material world with Dan. <laughs> All right. Coming up, options traders are biting into one chip maker ahead of earnings tomorrow. So how should you play Qualcomm before it reports? We've got the trade next. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market side in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of S.A. Lauder. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. And do not forget, you can sign up to get Jim's latest insights with the CNBC Investing Club. Point your phone at that QR code on the side of the screen to sign up. All right. Meantime, shares of Qualcomm have rebounded from recent lows but are still down nearly 10 percent over the past three months. One options bet trader is betting that there could be more pain ahead when the chipmaker reports earnings tomorrow. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so taking a look at the options market right now, the options market is implying that Qualcomm could move a little over 5% higher or lower. We did see calls outpacing puts by about 2 to 1. Uh, however, I would say that the sentiment was decidedly mixed overall, and four of the five largest institutional bets we saw were actually put purchases. An example of that were the January 115s. We saw somebody pay $1.65 for 500 of those. 
But because options premium are slightly lower than they often are going into earnings, it has averaged a nearly 7% move over the last eight quarters. We did see some bullish bets, too. There was a buyer of the 140, 145 call spread expiring November 26. But on balance, the options markets did get a little bit shorter in Qualcomm today. Yeah. Tim, what's your take on Qualcomm? I think, you know, in the world of supply chain and obviously in the chip world, it's seen as more defensive just because the valuation is so cheap. Obviously, what we've heard from Apple and a few other folks doesn't bode well here. And, and the question is, you know, have we priced it in even though the stock's bounced a little bit? So I, I actually think the stock's interesting. I, I think it's, it's weathered a handful of really significant um, existential and secular issues and, and customer relationships over the last few years. Uh, the valuation, I think, makes sense in this environment. Top chip pick, Dan. Well, you know, last week, Mel, after that earnings call from Intel, I just thought if you saw this thing in the mid-40s, I think that's a good value play for a lot of the, the reasons that Tim just mentioned. The other one that can't get out of its own way, Taiwan Semi, which I've played a couple times over the last six months, has just been in this long base. That one on evaluation looks really good, too, especially if we can get by some of these Taiwan fears and like free up some of these bottlenecks as it relates to supply chain. So to me, that's another one that I look to buy uh, down at these levels. All right, Mike, thank you. We'll see you on Friday. That's a full show, Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, every Friday, in fact. Up next, Final Trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out some of uh, these other names making moves on earnings this afternoon. Shares of Activision uh, dropping more than 10 percent on its report. T-Mobile, Mondelez also on the move higher. And, of course, uh, we're continuing to track Zillow, which uh, posted that big drop in the after hours. Karen, just quickly, I'm curious, are you tempted here to get in? I am tempted, but, you know, I bought Ulta a date early last time. That worked out okay, but I could have bought it a lot better. So I'm trying to be patient. I'm interested in Zillow. I'm going to let it shake out a little bit. All right. Fair enough. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. I like Activision. Uh, different kind of gaming than Las Vegas Sands. Again, what we heard from Rob Goldstein, you have a company with a lot of firepower, maybe $12 billion, certainly $6 billion in sale to those Vegas assets. Uh, I like Vegas Sands here. Karen. Yeah, if the market trades down, not all stocks will. I think Big Cap Farmer will do well. The PPH gets you a good mix of the top 25. BK Brian Kelly. Yeah, so I'm going to roll the dice on this one. I bought some long bonds today, and you can do it in your account via TLT ahead of the Fed betting rates go lower. Dan Nathan. Yeah, last night Mike Coe had the call on lift. I liked it below 50. I still like it below 50. All right, thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.